You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. This morning we are continuing our series in um, what we believe, the truths of the faith. I'll invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Um, we won't necessarily exposit this passage, which is my preference. Um, we'll get back into some more expository um, preaching uh, starting of Advent. But we have been in a 10-week series uh, just working through our church's doctrinal statement of faith. And so we, have, uh, we are now on, on our seventh doctrine on the church. And so we'll read Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. Um, as, as a way to kind of get into the topic this morning. So this is uh, page 977 of your Pew Bible, if you're following along. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So we've come a long ways in our study through the doctrinal statement. As I said, we're already in point seven, which is our doctrine of the church, meaning that we've covered our kind of doctrine of God, our doctrine of the Bible, the scriptures, our doctrine of the human condition, the reality that we all face as fallen humanity, as sinners under the just wrath of God. We studied the person of Christ, God incarnate in human flesh, We studied then following that the work of Christ, what Jesus has done, the centerpiece of the doctrinal statement, point five, the work of Christ, how Christ came to earth as man, put on flesh, the second member of the Trinity, put on flesh, lived the righteous life we should have lived, you should have lived, but failed to do. We all as sinners in point three, the human condition, failed to keep God's law. And as a result, are deserving of his wrath and justice, which culminates in an eternity in hell if nothing happens to prevent that. And then the work of Christ comes along. Jesus comes to earth. He doesn't sin. He's without sin. He's perfect. Lives righteously. Earns the favor of God. And what does Jesus do, though, with that perfect righteousness? Does not keep it to himself. He goes to the cross. And he dies on a Roman cross under the just wrath of God. He takes the place of sinners like you, like me, on the cross. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, being Jesus, to be sin for us. He dies on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the work of Christ, the centerpiece for all sinners, repenting of their sin, confessing themselves as a sinner deserving of God's justice, can look to the cross, can look to Jesus and his work, his burial into the tomb, where three days later he's resurrected from the dead, ministers for 40 days, and then ascends into heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. All of this is the work of Christ done for sinners that they might be saved, brought into the family of God. That was doctrine five. Doctrine six was last week, the Holy Spirit. We talked about that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. God now lives with you by faith. The Holy Spirit regenerates you, brings you to life, saves you, and now dwells with you. And so now we are then into this seventh doctrine of the church. There's a normal progression that's revealed in all of this. I kind of just laid it out for you, how this kind of rolls along. And it speaks volumes about what we believe. And this is, this is the gist of the doctrinal statement on the church. Everyone who places faith in Jesus Christ gets the Holy Spirit, point six, and is made a part of God's church. Everyone who places faith in Jesus Christ is a part of the church church. There are no standalone Christians. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are brought into the church. That's why the doctrinal statement doesn't go point six, the work of point five, the work of Christ, point six, the Holy Spirit, and then point seven, individual salvation on an island, you know, all alone. And it goes into the doctrine of the church. That when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are adopted into the family of God. You are brought in to the church. Christ is doing his work of gathering all those who confess him as Christ, and he calls them his church. That was brought up in the point one of our doctrinal statement, that God is on a mission to make a people for himself called the church. Now, this is what the start of the doctrinal statement, uh, point seven, asserts. We're going to look at it here quickly. We'll kind of work through it a little bit, but... This is the doctrinal statement. It'll be in tiny, tiny print up on the screen. But here's what it says. I'll read the paragraph for you. We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer in paragraph. Is that helpful for anybody? Look how tiny that is. <laughs> I squeeze it all in there. Get out your, get out your binoculars to read that. All right, so that, that is the doctrinal statement. And from that first sentence, you can see 
The true church is made up of those who are truly saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are saved and every believer upon their conversion is immediately brought into the invisible church of God. Now I say invisible because it's this transfer of membership you can't really see. At what point is an individual brought into the church? Well, what point are they saved? Now, there are evidences, I think, at times you can really see in evidences of grace. Sanctification occurs in a person's life, and you can kind of see that there's change that's happened. But really, when does that happen? We don't know. It's, but it's a, a transfer of con, and con, through conversion into this invisible church of God. Only God knows for sure if an individual is converted and thus, only God knows who is truly in this one global, invisible, universal church. Only God knows who it that would who that who comprises that invisible, universal church. As our statement says, when an individual is justified, they are united by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, of which He is the head. You cannot stop this from happening. It is a package deal. So sometimes uh, when we're out messing around, driving, we'll, get, we'll do a special of going by McDonald's. We don't make it a regular deal, so don't like get after me if you think McDonald's is terrible for you. We know it is, but we like to eat there occasionally. So we're out driving around. We'll drive through as a special deal. We'll drive through McDonald's. And the kids always get a happy meal, right? Not because it's the best food, but because it comes with a toy. Yes, so I always get a Happy Meal. But uh, my wife always has snacks and drinks packed basically for us all when we go somewhere. So they all already have their water bottle. We already have something to drink. So we'll pull up to the screen. You know, now it's all this big LCD screen. You know, she can read how your order comes along. And so we order two Happy Meals, you know, you want apple slices or fries. Well, whoever wants apple slices, fries. What do you want to drink? We don't want to drink. What? What do you want to drink? I said, well, we don't want any drinks. And you know what pops up on the board? Coke. <laughs> and I say, oh, well, we, we don't want to drink. Uh, I, I see Cokes on the screen. We don't, we don't want to drink. Don't send us. We only have so many cup holders. I know we bought a nice big new van, but it only has 12 cup holders. And we've already got like eight things going. We can't take any more drinks. So we say no drinks. They can't change it. It's a package deal. If you order a Happy Meal, they've got, now they might hold the Coke back when you get to the window, but on that screen, they can't change it. You can't order a Happy Meal without ordering a pop. It's a package deal. When you come to Christ, that's just, it's just like ordering a Happy Meal, all right? You can't come to Christ and not become a part of the church. It's just the way that it goes. It is a package deal. You cannot say to Jesus, you know what, I'll take your salvation, but that whole church thing, I don't really want to be with everybody else. It's a package deal. You, you, can't, you, can't have, you can't separate those things. When you place faith in Christ, you are brought into the church of God. You become a part of absolutely the invisible church, but as we'll read on in our statement, that true church that is invisible is manifest, which means it's seen in local churches. It is seen in local churches. Does everyone in the invisible church, in the invisible church, attend this visible church? 
No, by no means, right? We don't have enough people. I mean, hopefully Christianity, I'm pretty sure, is in a better state than just this handful of people in the middle of southern Iowa meeting at a visible, visible church. No, not everyone. That would be impossible to have everyone in the visible church gather at the same location at the same time. Another question. Does everyone in the invisible church have a visible church that they are engaged with? So does everyone have, everyone in the, in the invisible church go to this visible church? No, that's impossible. But does everyone in the invisible church have a visible church that they are engaged with? That's a tough question. And I'm going to say that unless there are providential hindrances keeping them from the local gathering, yes, everyone in the invisible church has some sort of connection in a local church because you cannot separate the two. You cannot separate the two. Now, if you're a part of the invisible church, there is a calling, a desire to fellowship and be in community with and help and minister to and benefit from the local church. And so if you are a part of the invisible church, there's no such thing as a churchless Christian. And certainly, that is the invisible church, but that invisible church is manifest in local churches. And so everyone who's truly a Christian is going to want to be engaged unless providentially hindered, which I mean, if you're, if you're one of these uh, cashmere, whatever, we are unreached people group who is saved and you're a 0.01% and you've heard the gospel message through the airwaves and you've trusted in Christ, you become a part of the invisible church, but you know no other believer around you, well, you can't really join a church, a local church. You're part of the invisible church, but you can't really join a local church. Ain't none of us around here got that problem. I mean, if you are part of the invisible church, it manifests itself in local churches. Those who become members of, of Christ, of those who trust Christ become members of the invisible church. Our statement recognizes there is one true invisible church and that it manifests itself in local visible churches. You cannot love Christ and not love the church. You cannot love Christ and not love his church. That again is that this insanity that you could come and say to me, Darren, I, I really like you, but your wife, I can't stand her. That is not going to go very far with me. <laughs> That's not going to work very good. We're going to have to figure something out. Because if you don't like me, you don't, we're, we're a package deal. I mean, you know, I'm the one up here preaching on the past, but you know what I'm saying. It's, you cannot love Christ and not love his bride. That's not the way, that's not, that's not how this is going to work out. Additionally, those who become members of this local visible churches as they're spread out ought to be believers. With, to the best of our ability, we are to protect the fellowship from those who don't, do not love Christ. We are to work to be truly a Christian church, not a country club, not those who have gathered because our families have always gathered here, where the membership is not based on family status, just geography, friendships with other members, or personal history. Membership is to be recognized as best as a church can tell. Can we know perfectly? We don't have a little... Little meter, we don't take like 
Everyone's you get your temperature taken everywhere you go when you go in uh, these days. So you go into a hospital, everyone's taking your temperature. We don't have a are you saved gauge when you walk in the door to let us know if you can come if you're a, if you're a member of the church. Now again, that's not attending. This is membership, something more that we're talking about. But membership is to be recognized as best as the church can tell with those who uh, with those who truly love Christ. Membership is to be restricted to those who know Jesus. The statement goes on, the church recognizes two ordinances, baptism and communion. Now, Jesus himself commands uh, his church to baptize their converts. If you still have your Bible to Matthew, 20, Matthew 16, which is the start of the church, and we, we could have talked more about that. Christ begins this church saying this positive, powerful statement, the gates of hell will not prevail against the movement of the church. You go on back to, to Matthew 28, famous passion of the Great Commission, Jesus is, after his resurrection, is getting ready to ascend. It says in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said to them, this is his gathered believers, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, baptizing them in the singular name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ has commanded baptism out of his church, that when we go and spread the gospel message, we go and we teach, we disciple, and we baptize. Now, unfortunately, in the reality of church today, there are many different perspectives on baptism, many different ideas on the mode of baptism and the moment of baptism. But what mode is it to be done by? At what moment in a person's life is it to be done by? Like a, a mode we have, you can be um, immersed or uh, effused or sprinkled is called something else. They have, they have fancy names for all of them. Basically, you can be sprinkled, you can be um, dunked. Those are the different modes. And we have different moments do you get baptized as a child in a covenant family or do you get baptized as an adult believer or someone who makes a credible profession of faith? Now, I think there's grace to give um, believers on this issue, meaning that I don't think if you differ on the perspective of the mode or the moment, it makes you not a Christian. I don't think the Bible is clear enough that we can say that if, if you hold to this mode at this moment and I hold to this mode at this moment, we're, you're, we're, not, we're not both believers in Jesus and in his saving work on the cross. I don't believe that. I don't think it means necessarily you're not a Christian. However, here at First Christian Church, even historically before I got here, the position is that we are a credo-baptizing church, which means that we baptize those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Not, not infants, not children who are members of the covenant family, which is a Presbyterian way of, or a Reformed way of thinking of it, but credo-baptist. Once you make a profession of the faith, you understand yourself to be a sinner, deserving of the wrath of God, saved by Jesus Christ and his mercy. You are then immersed, showing your unity and your death with Christ under the waters. You died with Christ, and then you are raised to newness of life. And it is an outward display of an inward reality that has happened in your life. You are confessing before the world. And the church is saying before the world, we recognize this has happened in a person's life. They have died with Christ. They are raised to newness of life. And so we recognize credo-baptism by immersion, although the mode, you know, if we were out in the Sahara Desert and we had no hope of ever getting water, um, 
that's never going to happen. So, you know, just you might as well. We've got a tub in the back. We got a, a, a big pool, a baptismal, I guess the official word, I shouldn't call it a tub, a baptismal that, that we can baptize you in. If you know Jesus as your Savior, if you think, well, Darren, uh, Listen to you preach for a, lot of, for a while now, you know, and, and I understand the gospel, that I'm a sinner, that I deserve God's justice, and that Jesus has died for me, but I have never been baptized since my understanding of that. Please let me know, and we would baptize you as a, as a recognition in obedience to Christ's command that you have been saved, that Christ has saved you. Baptism, communion, is this meal shared with the corporate body in remembrance of Christ's death on the cross. Communion is to be shared in the corporate gathering of those who are true members of the church. You know, some denominations so protect communion that if you're not a member of the, of the church you attend, you cannot take communion with them. It's, it's called closed communion. And so if you're not on the rolls as a member of the church, you wouldn't be allowed to come up and to partake of communion. Now, as a congregation, we have always practiced open communion, which means not that just we take it out and just feed everybody walks by on the street, here's the cracker and some juice. No, it means that we still guard it to the point that if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you shouldn't take communion. You're, you're actually eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. But if you are a believer in Christ, if you have repented of your sins, trusted in Christ, you are welcome to take communion. However, if you don't know if that's you, don't take communion. It, it's, it's, it's saying, I've heard the message of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. I don't believe it, but I'm going to pretend to partake in it. It's adding judgment to you. So, but our position still is one of open communion. We try and warn those that this meal is not to be taken lightly and only to be taken by those who truly believe themselves to be a part of the body of Christ. The main point of the doctrinal statement is just that the main idea that it wants to get across is really a negative one. A wrong view of these things would be that they do something for you. Communion isn't doing anything um, salvifically for you. It might be spiritually edifying. We come and we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual service that we are having. The Holy Spirit is present because we're two or three are gathered. He is here with us. And so there's a shared communion there. But as far as it adding anything salvifically to you, that's a wrong view of communion. Baptism doesn't save you. Not not in any, it doesn't do anything for you in any salvific way. Those are, those are wrong teachings on these ordinances. And so that's a basic point of the doctrines uh, in our doctrine statement of the church. A few passages that I do not have time to read this morning. First Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 31 is the passage about the body of Christ. Ear doesn't say to the eye, I have no need of you. And, and thus all the parts work together for the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, talks about the unity of the church, how there were Jews, Jews and Gentile, and Christ broke down the dividing wall of hostility and made the two one. And so both of those passages, just 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 31, and Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, emphasize the importance of the unity and the togetherness of the church. But why? There's a ton of information, and I just want to get it out there. I understand that it's a lot to kind of absorb. But why? Why does the church matter? Is this just a throwaway doctrine? 
No. Is the doctrine of the church just for the weak? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. And that's everyone who sees themselves clearly. How does the church practically help us? I have friends that, um, those of you who know us, know that Darla's just gone through uh, surgeries and, and just, you know, has had health things that she's been struggling with specifically these past few weeks as she's had another surgery. And we have this, this friendship um, with another couple and the wife has um, debilitating headaches. And so there's just, there's suffering that, that is happening in both of these couples. And yesterday I was texting back and forth with this guy and, and, and just commenting on the reality of it. It really helps to just have somebody in the trenches with you. That when you're suffering, when things aren't going well, it really does just help to have someone that, that knows what it's like. Someone that can kind of grieve with you while you're grieving. Someone who can climb down into your sorrow with you and trouble and be with you through it all. Empath an empathetic uh, response to you. It is meaningful and it helps. But is that enough? No, it isn't enough. It's, it's a beautiful thing in, in the church, I think, specifically, that we grieve with those who are grieving, that we have empathy, that we, we mourn with those who mourn. But that is not all that the church gives. Church gives more than that. You can get that anywhere. You can get that lots of different places. But that is not enough. Um, Oh, I don't want to. I read a, I read a crazy sci-fi book that I was going to share, but there's not time for that. <laughs> about, the, about camaraderie and salvation through community and empathy. It's not enough. The, the, that's not enough. The church, though, is camaraderie on mission. We aren't just stuck down in the trenches together giving empathetic responses and caring for one another. We're actually going somewhere. We're actually doing something. And so it isn't just about unity for the sake of unity. It isn't about just sharing with one another for the sake of sharing with one another. It is because we are a church that is going somewhere. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. That's an offensive term. We are on the offense. Gates of hell are trying to keep us from going into and, and, and going on the positive, going on the attack. The church is not just sharing. The church is camaraderie on mission. We are a people that is going somewhere. We're not just stuck in the trenches together until we die and then nothing. <laughs> the church is engaged in the divine mission of God, the missio dei, the spreading of the gospel throughout the world, discipling the nations when they come to faith, and yes, suffering, ministering alongside of each other when all the troubles of life come into us. The church is meaningful because it does give us, hopefully, ideally, the way it's supposed to work, brothers and sisters in Christ who can share in our sufferings, but also who understand we are going somewhere. We have a brotherhood and a sisterhood that does not terminate in this life, that goes on to a mission. Why, and I have this down in my notes, so I'm going to say it. Why am I here? <laughs> Why am I here? Me, is, am I just here? Then you're going to take this the wrong way, so just hear me out. Am I just here because I like all of you? No. <laughs> I do like all. I'm not, I, I love all. I, I, but that is not my primary motivation. That is not my primary motivation. I am here because I believe God does his work in and through the local church. 
and I want to be a part of what God is doing, not just a place where I can go and be helped, which I am. When we've gone through our sufferings, this church has blessed us and helped us, and it's been wonderful. But that is not the, the, the final goal. I am here because God works through the local church, and I want to be a part of where God is and what he is doing. Let's flip the question around. Are you just here because you like me? Obviously. <laughs> not. Not. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not that foolish. And if you were here just because you liked me, God help you because I'm going to disappoint you possibly in the near future. Uh, I, it isn't about, it isn't about this, the like, it's not about the likability. I can't be a likable enough guy. I might be likable enough to get you here for a while, but eventually I'm going to fail you. Eventually I'm going to fail. But I'm, my call is to be here with me with me, fighting for the gospel through the ministry and representation of the local church. The church matters because we find in the church fellowship during trials, absolutely, and friendships on the mission. It's a call to, there's, the, it's, it's a call for the, for the men of the church to rise up as well. I think men are, are longing for a mission for a purpose, for something to do, for a goal. The church is this call to be about something, going somewhere, not just a place to let feelings. I've had conversations with, with men who talk about that. They don't like to come to church because it's just a place where we just talk about feelings all the time. Uh, just want to get you to cry all the time. And that's been a complaint. And honestly, I can't disagree with them that there are lots of places where that's just what it is. But the church is a church, yes, where we can Weep with those who weep, but we have friendship on the mission. We are going somewhere. The doctrine of the church is about fellowship and fighting the fight of faith together with fellow Christians. We are going somewhere. Join the fight. Be the church. Let's pray. Father, help us now this morning. I know that this was um, a lot of doctrine and just talking about the scriptures and the things that come out of the scriptures. But Father, at the heart of it all is this unity in Jesus Christ, is this mission that Christ has given to his church. And I pray that right now this morning in this building and for anyone who is listening, I pray, Father, that we would hear that call to get involved in the local church, not because of some sort of personal preference or any other extemporaneous desires, but because you move through the local church, the visible, the invisible church, the true church is on the move, and it's on the move through the local visible church. And Father, inspire us. I want to be a part of what you're doing in the local church. So God, move in our hearts, drawing us closer to you, that we would be together in fellowship and aligned on mission for the glory of your name and the spread of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.